Are we able to reimagine a world where clean air, water, and food are available to all? Where economies are focused on health and well-being? Where cities are livable and people have control over their health and the health of the planet? These are the questions being asked by the World Health Organization as it kicks off World Health Day, an international campaign to focus global attention on urgent actions needed to keep humans and the planet healthy. At Train Technologies, we're challenging what's possible for a sustainable world. That means that day in and day out, our employees, partners, and customers are finding new and innovative ways to mitigate climate change and build a better planet for us all. And we're not alone on this journey. Throughout the last two seasons of our Healthy Spaces podcast, we've been talking to leaders from different areas of expertise to better understand how we can create better indoor environments so that people can live, work, and play in a safer, healthier way. We've also discussed the impact that better indoor environments may have on outdoor environments. In fact, the interconnectivity between human health and planetary health is so delicate that it's impossible to talk about one without the other. To honor World Health Day, I'm going to look back on some of those conversations that explore the delicate balance between human and planetary health. I'll be joined by someone who lives and breathes sustainability, both in his personal and professional life. I think that the fact that there's some people thinking about how do we solve some of the big concerns of the day, these are very relevant. It's a very relevant topic. We're all concerned about bottom line impacts of using energy in buildings, but we're also concerned about health, of us being in our homes, of us returning to work, of us sending our kids to school. That's Scott Tu, sustainability leader and executive director for Train Technology Center for Energy Efficiency and Sustainability. And I'm Rasha Hassanin, and you're listening to Healthy Spaces with Train Technologies, a series of conversations that explores the world of indoor and outdoor environmental quality from the inside out. Scott, welcome. It's great to have you on the show again. Thanks, Rasha. This is not your first time on the Healthy Spaces podcast. You were actually my very first guest for our pilot episode back in 2020. Back then, we were right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. We just heard a small clip from that conversation where you talked about the struggle in balancing concerns between human health and bottom line impacts of energy use in buildings. A lot has happened since December 2020. How optimistic are you feeling about the future right now? I mean, a lot has happened. You're right. But I am optimistic. I mean, I think we're all smarter. No matter who you are, where you are, what you do, I think we're all wiser now in, in a lot of respects. And I think indoor air is no different than a lot of other subjects. We all have learned a lot in the past couple of years. What about you, Rasha? What have you learned in terms of connections between indoor air quality and all the other aspects of a building that both owners and occupants care about? As we've been looking at at indoor environmental quality tied to the pandemic, we've also seen a lot of positive outcomes in terms of innovation, general public awareness, and that in turn has created demand for new products that promote health and well-being in a very different way. One very specific positive outcome of the pandemic has been the emergence of new indoor environmental quality standards based on new scientific learnings and the spotlight that's been put on reducing the risk of transmission of airborne diseases indoors, which I think is is a lot more new than some of the cognitive studies that have been out there from before. 
These new standards, though, come with a couple of warning signs. There's still a lot of discrepancy when it comes to how we define what clean indoor air means. The International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate created a public database where everyone can research current standards and guidelines for indoor environmental quality all over the world. First, there are still many countries which have no guidelines at all. And secondly, maximum contaminant level thresholds differ largely by country, even by state here in the U.S. So there's definitely a need for this unifying approach on what good looks like for human health. We're also seeing that increasing outdoor ventilation and filtration are still largely regarded as a silver bullet for indoor air quality. And that's incurring higher energy consumption, which is setting us back really decades in terms of how we've improved building energy efficiency and, quite frankly, uh, the sustainability of the built environment. Yeah, and to that point, Raj, if I can just say something about that. You know, I think that for most people around the world, we all have gotten comfortable with the fact that outdoor air in some areas is polluted. We have given so little thought to indoor air. And, and actually, many times, uh, there are a lot of studies that show that, as you know, that indoor air can be two to five times worse than outdoor air. And I know that there was this move during the pandemic for us to just ventilate with lots of outdoor air as if that were going to solve everything. And I'm not sure it solved all the things that we all wanted it to solve. And once again, I think we're a lot wiser And especially when you start to think about a lot of the allergens that actually get into the indoor air actually come from the outdoor air. And part of that actually comes from the fact that we've historically, I think, looked at carbon dioxide as this proxy for air quality. And, and, you know, if you dilute the air, you get lower concentrations of carbon dioxide. And we now know, as you said, we're, we're wiser. Carbon dioxide is a great proxy for some things, but it's not a great proxy for total indoor air quality. We had a previous episode with Manish Sharma, the global CTO and vice president of Connected Buildings at Honeywell, where we talked about this. The fact that bringing fresh air comes with an energy penalty is true. It's the reality. I mean, we all know that. But while increased ventilation is one solution, it is not the only solution. My experience and all, all the steady information what we did Uh, first thing I would like to say that CO2 is not a bad parameter to measure. I think it's an important parameter. However, we need to be cognizant that we are using a proxy for a proxy to solve a problem. CO2 is considered a proxy for occupancy density in the space, which is a proxy for other contaminant of concerns such as PM, VOCs and others. Secondly, I would say CO2 is a lagging indicator of indoor air quality as it takes time to build up and then stays in the air. While we are allowing CO2 to build up in the area, other contaminant of concerns like uh, particulate matters are also rising. We can measure CO2 as far as there is no other option. But in my opinion, multi-dimension sensor I strongly recommend that we should think about measuring much more to provide a holistic fix of the problem, not just one parameter. I think, uh, Rasha, that this whole idea of needing to monitor, I mean, obviously we do. I think it's funny that most of us consume roughly two to three quarts of water a day, and we're always concerned about how clean is that water that I'm putting in my body. But the facts are we actually inhale 15,000 quarts of air a day, And much of that 
up to 90% of it, as you know, is indoor air. And we don't give a lot of thought many times to the quality of the indoor air. It's not enough just to rush the building with with fresh air unless we're providing more sensing capabilities, unless we're monitoring what we're inhaling, how can we go about and ensure that we're doing it better and differently? Absolutely. And, and like you said, with water, you think it's okay as long as it looks great and it tastes great. What we found too, and we've heard about it in previous episodes, as long as people don't smell it, they don't feel like the air is low quality. This was before the age of a pandemic and a virus. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so that sensing capability is critical so people can see their air in a way that allows them to make better choices. And so monitoring and measuring in order to improve indoor air quality has been a recurring theme on the Healthy Spaces podcast, as you know, already back in season one. My previous guest, Jim Freyhut, um, an associate professor of architectural engineering at Penn State, talked about how digital technologies have taken longer to penetrate the construction industry compared to others. I did a little study before in terms of how is digital technology and information technology sensors and controls and electronics used in the building industry compared to other industries. And the building industry does use these technologies, but at a very, very low density compared to other systems. Cars, it's amazing. You'll have 100, 200 sensors. You'll have maybe 1,000 readings per second. All that information is immediately transferred into the operating system and the performance of the car and the safety situation of the car is optimized. We don't even do that in a very slow frame of reference. We don't even take enough measurements in building to really operate. We have similar type of measurements and sensors, but very few of them. And the information technology coordination within the building is not that good. For example, um, you can have very sophisticated LED, uh, light-emitting diode lighting systems in buildings, and that, that's a good example in terms of improvement in energy efficiency of electricity to light, going from the incandescent bulb to the fluorescent bulb to LED bulbs, and measuring the light and putting sensors in the building and say, well, I don't need light in this uh, part of the building because I have daylight. Those sorts of things are done with separate systems in the building, the air conditioning system, the lighting system the ventilation system, they're only really crudely coordinated in terms of the amount of readings that are taken, how that information is analyzed in real time, and then how the system as a whole and the parts of the system are coordinated to give you the best overall building system performance. It's a very difficult problem that the building industry really needs to address much more aggressively. So what do you think, Scott? Should buildings and homes be more like cars, fast, furious, and with a whole lot of sensors? One thing I think we can agree on, Rasha, whether it's cars or not, is that if you, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And I think that that's what monitors and sensors give us. We've got to have the data to know what we're dealing with and what the size of the problem is, and also to come up with better ways to manage and to solve the problem. And so, yeah, maybe the automotive industry is teaching us something about indoor air quality. Traditionally, organizations like the WHO have focused on outdoor air pollution when they talk about the need for clean air. And it's no surprise, considering 4.2 million people die prematurely every year from ambient or outdoor air pollution. 
However, indoor air pollution can be five times worse than what it is outdoor. The latest figures point to 3.8 million deaths caused by indoor air pollution annually. The number of people who have to live with chronic diseases due to long time exposure to bad air quality is even higher. According to the WHO, in 2019, it was estimated that asthma alone affected 262 million people. And the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology estimates that 10 to 30% of the global population is affected by allergic rhinitis. So it should come as no surprise that air pollution, which in and of itself is an environmental disaster, is also a human disaster. A study by CE Delft looked at 432 cities across Europe and came to the conclusion that on average, every inhabitant of a European city suffered a welfare loss of over 1,250 euro or $1,400 a year owing to direct and indirect health losses associated with poor air quality. This is equivalent to 3.9% of income earned in cities, which is very substantial when you think about how the cost of living is increasing. Reducing air pollution levels is not only good for our planet, but it's also good for our health and our economies. Win, win, win. We've seen this narrative played over and over when we talk about electrification of the transport sector. And we're going through that ourselves in our transport refrigeration businesses. Replacing fossil fuel vehicles with cleaner technology alternatives, coupled with increasing investment in renewable energy, results in more sustainable and healthy cities. What can other sectors, including the building and construction sector, learn from the automotive industry? I think the automotive industry has learned, along with all of us, that you can't wait on every issue to be solved before you start making progress, number one. There are some things we just know that we need to go do and do better. Do we have to wait to have every question answered about infrastructure before you can start making some big moves towards transitioning to all electric? And the answer to that was no. We don't have to have it all answered. We can begin taking the right steps towards the next future. And along the way, things can begin to develop within the ecosystem. The customers of the next generation of automobiles who are buying electric includes myself. And I think you, Rasha. Yep. <laughs> is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. Is it working? It does work. And I think there's a lot of upside potential. And it's the same for buildings and things like indoor air quality. I mean, we know that there are some big positives around improving indoor air quality, and at the same time, connecting it to the goals of a building owner related to efficiency of the building or energy savings. All those things don't have to be islands unto themselves. All those things are connected. That's what we should learn from the automotive industry is that first acknowledging that it's all connected and then stepping back and beginning to think about how we can manage it sort of comprehensively. I remember actually being in California at the beginning of this conversation on electric vehicles when Tesla was first formed. And it felt like there were so many headwinds because you couldn't solve 100% of the problem. But that's what I think the automotive industry did really well was they said, actually, we're not gonna solve all the charging stations and everything all over. It's, hey, if I can charge it at home, and drive around and get to work and back and have enough range for that, then I'm going to get an uptick. And that's exactly what happened. And I think in the building industry, we can be thinking the same way. Like we don't have to solve for every eventuality to do that. And to your point, Rasha, I think that in a similar vein, buildings for many years 
I don't think we saw a future where we have the choices that we may have today. But it's the same in terms of uh, the environmental side of buildings and and electrification, for instance. I mean, there are solutions in the marketplace where we can transition completely away from burning fossil fuels to generate heat. We can move to total electrification using uh, geothermal heating, using heat pumps. I can't think of the downsides, really, for a building owner, uh, for the occupants, from moving towards solutions that exist today. It's sort of a same analogy we were talking about with electric vehicles. So Scott, let's shift gears a little bit to talk about what you look after for us every day here at Train Technologies, our environmental, social, and governance, or our ESG. Perhaps not everyone's familiar with the term ESG and what it really means. And I know you've got a teenage son, so how would you explain it to him? Yeah, ESG, as it's called today, or environmental, social, governance. Previous to this was called sustainability, which for some people never meant much either. They didn't know what to make of it. Here's the way I would explain it. I think uh, what it means to any company is we're questioning what it takes to be better and to do better. And that's that's the bottom line. But it's great because I think it's helping companies view themselves differently and it's helping us view those outside the company very differently. It helps you redefine uh, where you go in the future, helps you commit to things that maybe you weren't comfortable committing to in the past. And I think to our earlier point, Rasha, we're able to use data about where we are today to figure out how do you what needs to be adjusted so that we're better in the future. The E, the S, and the G, I, I probably should have mentioned, they each do something. I mean, environmental, I mean, that one makes sense. It means what are we doing as a company to reduce negative impacts in the environment, especially things like greenhouse gas, for instance, and greenhouse gas emissions. Of uh, The social side, the S, that really gets to how we how we manage and uh, treat the people that work for the company. It also, it's also a, a lens for communities and where we choose to invest the company's dollars within communities, as well as where we've invested facilities and research centers and sales offices. And then lastly is the G. ESG now is viewed by most stakeholders as so important to the company's future that we have to have the proper G or governance in place, which means the board of directors has a role. There's an, a leadership team that has a role. The management team has a broad role. But it also speaks to the fact that every employee in the company may need to have some level of ownership for us to get this right. Because we just can't do it with a few well-meaning people trying to do good things for a company. The GP says that it's kind of all hands on board and everyone has a role. Yep. I know you talk a lot about the environmental responsibility of businesses. As COVID-19 has added pressure on social responsibility too, how is social performance looked at today from an ESG perspective? I think COVID-19 was a wake-up call for every company, small, medium, and large. It certainly was ahead of its time. I don't think we would have gotten as far as we've gotten in two years if we had waited on inertia, sort of every company to, to play catch-up. It accelerated almost every facet of how companies think about the social side of their business, meaning how do we treat people? How do we think about um, the future of work? How do we think about flexibility and resilience? I think for companies like Train Technologies, it did the same thing for us too. We found a way to be flexible. We found a way 
to keep productivity moving forward, moving in the right direction, at the same time, acknowledging that our employees will need to do their work differently than they may have done it in the past. So the way we did that was that we adjusted, we developed new policies, we provided new benefits, and much of that is carrying over into who the company will be in the future so that things continue to be productive and people can feel like, number one, their concerns are being acknowledged by the company, but more than that, they're feeling like the company has become a partner of theirs. It's one thing to be to acknowledge something. It's another to say, how can we help? And I think because this is happening across multiple companies, you're starting to see the market react and starting to talk about how do we measure how a company does this in a way that it can indicate where to invest our money. And so there's a lot of conversation around how do we get more transparency around ESG metrics especially the more squishy social portion of ESG. Everyone is now grappling with this area of ESG that seems to be emerging a little bit more. Yeah, we're going to continue to see this S of companies, the social side of companies evolve, I think, exponentially over the next few years. And I think the more data, obviously, the better, right? Because no one metric in this area is going to give you a good picture of the company. It's, you know, whether it's gender parity or ethnic equity or whatever it is, making sure you're providing equal opportunity for everyone in the workforce, everyone in the community. Those are still complex metrics and they're still evolving. Yes, evolving fast, though. And metrics are important. They allow businesses to understand how they're progressing year over year. They allow investors to be able to compare apples to apples when they're thinking about businesses. And they give them a meaningful way to benchmark companies before they make big investment decisions. I sat down with Joanna Frank, president and CEO of the Center for Active Design. Her organization works very closely with real estate investors. So it was interesting to hear their take on the role of health in ESG metrics. We're working with investors around the world, and I would say that there's two things that are really driving demand and shaping the building industry as we move forward. And so it's absolutely those investors, their increased commitment to environmental, social and governance metrics and really reporting on ESG metrics as part of their overarching priorities as institutional investors. So what that means for health is that health has now emerged as one of the key aspects of S. So that's kind of really important to this story because they have made commitments that they are going to have X percentage of their investment portfolio really be reporting on ESG. And that has become such an important piece of the puzzle because during the pandemic, the investments that had high ESG metrics were actually seen to outperform their partners who had lower ESG metrics or weren't reporting on ESG at all. Um, So that's a game changer. A couple of stats that I think are really telling, 92% of the institutional investors that we surveyed said that they are going to be enhancing their reporting around health and wellness strategies over the next three years. So if you weren't as a company actually reporting on health and wellness stats, you are going to be compelled to do so if you want to have investment from those institutional investors. Now, Scott, there's something else I've heard you talk about recently, and that's climate resilience. What does that mean and why does it matter? Yeah, climate resilience seems like a hard concept, but it's really not. It's about thinking ahead of how do we get ready for impacts, especially the negative impacts of climate. We can't fix all of our climate concerns in time. So 
Can we reduce the impact? Yes. And there are companies like Train Technologies who are doing their part to do that. But we can't fix the entire issue, which means there will continue to be things like extreme weather events. There are going to continue to be other impacts. And so whether we're talking about a city, a state, a country, a company, there's a need for building out your plans on how you will adjust in order to be ready for whatever those negative impacts of climate are. And so this is how we take the fear out of the conversation. We need a plan for how we'll react and act when some of these impacts happen. And that's resiliency. I think this is also not not new to us at Train either, right? I mean, the whole HVAC and refrigeration industry has come out of a need for essentially climate resilience. People can live in colder and colder or warmer and warmer climates if they have indoor environments that are regulated, that are cooled, that are heated, that have filtration. You can transport food, vaccines, et cetera, further. So this is our bread and butter, right? So when you couple that with that planetary responsibility, it becomes just a great combination. So Scott, as we wrap up, there's usually one or two more personal questions I like to ask my guests. So last time I asked you to give our listeners some tips when it comes to improving our own carbon footprint. Today, I'm going to ask you a tougher one. In fact, it's a question the World Health Organization is asking all of us on this World Health Day. Are you able to reimagine a world where clean air, water, and food are available to all? Where economies are focused on health and well-being, where cities are livable and people have control over their health and the health of the planet. Can I imagine it? Yes. I, you know, I think that the one thing we may have, the entire world may have taught ourselves in the past couple of years has been that the impossible can be possible. Sometimes what stands in the gap between where we are today and where we think things should be, sometimes it's a lack of clarity. We don't have the data. Sometimes it's a lack of innovation, but not often. Sometimes, though, it's just we haven't seen the problem for what it is. I mean, if you think about indoor air quality, there are some drivers for why we should insist on more indoor air quality at the same time, not uh, allowing ourselves to waste energy in a building for a demanding indoor air quality. But we haven't, we're not really all on the same page around what the great upside is for making sure all that happens. You know, learning goes up with better indoor air quality. As we all know, better indoor air quality has a direct impact to our overall health. And then last but not least, I think that uh, smart cities need to get this right too, because they're the ones tasked with providing the infrastructure for people in their homes in terms of electric grid for providing energy for a city. So there's great upside for getting this right. And so to your question, but can I imagine it? Yes, I can imagine it. I think we all should imagine this world where we get to check all the boxes and we don't have to settle for these negative trade-offs that we've all settled for so often in the past that we've forgotten that we settled for a trade-off. And so for me, I would start with the data and I and I would, you know, want to find a way to make it so available, so ubiquitous that people have no choice but to understand that we don't need to trade off human health for planetary health. And we can start to innovate in this space because I think when we make those trade-offs, the thing that suffers the most is innovation. Yeah, good point. 
So Scott, I have, as always, really enjoyed having this conversation with you. I know we have a lot of conversations one-on-one. We don't always let the rest of the world in. I've really loved looking back on some of the learnings from our experts, but I feel like there's so much more to explore when it comes to this intersection between human health and planetary health and what it means for cities, for businesses, and ultimately for us as citizens of the world. And so I am looking forward to this journey and continuing on this journey with you. Yeah, me too, Rasha. You've been listening to Healthy Spaces with Train Technologies. I'm Rasha Hassanin. Don't forget to follow us to hear future episodes. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.